Or I should say, buy a donkey. <laughs> well, it truly is a, a privilege uh, to be with you this morning. And uh, I'm not used to having a clock right in my face to count down my, my time. We have an hour and a half sermon time, right? Is that, Billy, is that what you told me? Okay, very good. Uh, it truly has been a privilege to be with you. Um, I know I can speak for my wife who's on this side. No, we're not fighting this morning. It's just more convenient to be up here ready to go. Um, we, we really have been thankful for our time getting to know many of you. And uh, I just, I, my prayer is that the time we've had this past week, but also this morning, uh, would just continue to, to promote our Lord Jesus Christ in your lives and your love for him, but also to give him glory. Um, I thank you, uh, Pastor Brom and Pastor Billy and all the elders here for uh, this week and uh, the privilege it is to present to you uh, this morning. Um, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, if you did not catch that on the slides as you came in this morning. I'm going to attempt to uh, use PowerPoint uh, this morning. Do we have that available? All right. Uh, I, will, I, I want to give a disclaimer uh, for you. I preached this um, um, message last week in Pretoria, and it's something that God just recently has, has laid on my heart as I studied this. Uh, I will tell you it's not a typical sermon for me. It is expository, but I don't normally use this many visual graphics. Uh, but as I confessed last week, this is probably one of the most difficult passages that I've ever uh, looked into in depth, and it really became a burden as I studied it out. Um, so I want to I give a disclaimer and say, uh, God has graciously, and one of the, the things we celebrate about the Reformation, he has grace, graciously made us to be priests. We have what is called the priesthood of the believer. And so we, we don't need a pastor or a priest to go to the Lord. We have that free access now. Uh, the, the sacrificial system has been uh, destroyed, and we're actually going to talk about that uh, today because Jesus is the perfect high priest. He's the perfect sacrifice, and we have full access to the throne. So I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking that you cannot understand the Word of God. And as Pastor Billy will tell you, uh, there are, and again, I don't have an exact stat, but my guess would be about 15% of the Word of God is very difficult to understand. We, we need to really take time and have, have mental exercise. So I don't want you to walk away this morning thinking, well, I certainly can't approach the Word of God. This is one of those passages that I personally had to really wrestle with. And as you're going to see, this is one of the most misunderstood passages, I believe, in the world. Uh, in fact, it's been responsible for many doctrines like the name it and claim it doctrine. If you just pray for something, then you'll, you'll get it. God will give it to you. How many have heard that before, right? It's a very, very common mistake. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 25. <clears throat> verses 11 through 25. And just before we read this, I want to emphasize that this is 
the previous verses starting in chapter one are what we call the triumphal entry. So this is when Jesus is proclaimed, they, they, they shout Hosanna, they lay the palm branches down and they throw their, their overcoats uh, before him and he has claimed to be the Messiah. And he of course is the Messiah. And so I want us to understand that context as we begin to read in verse 11. <clears throat> the Bible says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no, may no one ever eat from fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's go to the Lord once again and ask for his blessing, not just on the reading of his word, but as we begin to look more in depth. Father, uh, we ask for clarity of mind, both from uh, my mouth, but also as we receive and hear. Would you grant us understanding this morning, uh, not just understanding of, of your person and your character, but then how we can practically live in a way that draws us unto you and, and thus gives you pleasure. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone that, that has not come to the saving knowledge of who you are, Lord, that you, through the ministry of your word, that you, Holy Spirit, would open the eyes of those that are blinded to truth. Lord, may we all walk away a changed people this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. So, some of you being at the conference know that my, my wife is, uh, her name is Oriana, not Oriana, okay, it's not an orange, or in Spanish, a spider, it's Oriana, uh, was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, and she uh, has dual citizenship there in the Dominican Republic as well as in the United States. And uh, I was living in Hawaii, which is an absolutely gorgeous place to live, beautiful place, um, really loved living there, but it's really far away from the Dominican Republic. And we began to court, date, whatever, however you want to call it, 
And I decided that God, God was calling me to ask for her hand in marriage. And so I uh, worked hard, purchased a, a ring, flew down to the, the, from, from Hawaii to the Dominican Republic, from island to island around the world. And when I arrived, it was right after September 11th, the, uh, the airlines were actually, without telling people until they were entering the airspace of the Dominican Republic, they were alter, alternating airports. And so I was flying into a little airport rather than the main Santo Domingo airport there in the Dominican Republic and had no idea. So I was so excited after 32 hours, actually, uh, by the time I saw her, it was about more like 37 hours, but um, after 32 hours of traveling, I was exhausted. There was a, a, a pretty heavy uh, time change as far as the time goes, and I, I wanted a shower, I wanted to eat, wanted to see her and then get food. I was really, really hungry. To make a very long story short, <clears throat> I, uh, after five hours of waiting in the airport, realized there's got to be another airport. And at that time, in my broken Spanish, I asked uh, one of the locals, and he said, absolutely, of course there is. And he jetted me to the other airport, and I really didn't think that they would still be waiting. But sure enough, there they were, um, waiting for me, and the rest is, is history. But when I arrived at that airport, I was so disappointed that not only were they not there, but I was then eventually just left by myself. It was that small of an airport. It was like a little private airport. And it was so disappointing. But then on top of that, I was really hungry. I, I literally had not eaten. I, I grabbed a meal. I actually spent the night in uh, Puerto Rico and didn't get the opportunity to eat or anything like that. It, the, the flight was so quick. And I can only imagine... Um, Jesus wanting, as he approached this fig tree, as we just read, wanting and desiring to be fed that morning. And he goes to the fig tree, and he goes to find uh, what we're going to talk about on the tree that would have been a, a delicacy, that would have been something very sweet and satisfying, and there's nothing there. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, but as you're going to see, God says that religiosity is representative of this tree. In other words, we look like we should have fruit, and yet God knows, not, not other people, but Jesus knows that we don't. There is, if I could say, foliage, but there is no fruit. And that is what we're going to see this morning from Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 11 through 25. <clears throat> now, I want to also give a... Um, and another disclaimer as we uh, move forward this morning, and I probably should have had the, the verses up here. We'll fast forward. I'm not skilled enough to read and uh, work the, the remote uh, through this, but uh, this morning, how many of you like Oreos? Okay, many of you. Some of you are going to go get Oreos after we're done here. I'm sorry about that. Killed your diet. Um, but in theology, this passage is actually called a Markin because it's the book of Mark sandwich. I prefer Oreo, so we're going to call it a Markin Oreo today, okay? Uh, and, and by that I mean, I don't know if you noticed as we went through there, some of your Bibles actually divided this way. There's three sections in verses 11 through 25. And the way that Mark writes much of the book of Mark, 
is he gives us, if I can say it this way, a cracker of truth, then he gives us the stuffing, and then he gives us another cracker. And the crackers help us to understand the stuffing, and the stuffing helps us understand the cracker. In other words, even though these, these may look disconnected, you'll see the elements are actually intertwined with each other. So he starts with the fig tree and then goes back to the fig tree after visiting the temple. In the temple, he talks about prayer, and then in front of the fig tree again, he talks about prayer. And so you're going to see that this is not disconnected. And just like whoever created the Oreo, even though you guys violate how they designed the Oreo, it's meant to eat together, isn't it? How many of you actually twist, you know, just eat the stuffing? All right, time for confession this morning, right? Um, so as we go through this, uh, we want to deconstruct the Oreo. So let me, let me show you what that looks like, okay? You've got your illustration, your substance, and your illustration. But don't miss that the illustration isn't substance as well, okay? It's not, it's not that the, the cracker or the illustration isn't important. It's not that the fig tree isn't important. So I want to make that clear as we go through this this morning. But all of these go together for us to see the picture. And here is an error I want to warn you of. If you only look at one of these sections, which, is, which happens all the time, you will walk away not only misunderstanding God's intention, but you may actually have a false doctrine that applies in your church. So it, it is necessary for us to understand this all together. We're going to look at, at three things because there's three sections this morning. And the first is found in verses 11 through 14, and that is that Jesus is displeased with resources that cannot satisfy. Jesus is displeased with resources that cannot satisfy. You know, what's interesting as I travel around and get the opportunity to speak in Reformed churches and even Presbyterian churches, even fundamentalist churches, is that we have a lot of head knowledge in our churches. We have people that have a lot, we have degrees in theology. We have uh, studied the Bible for years. And what can often happen is a deadness, what I like to call academic idolatry, where we know a lot, and just like the Dead Sea, we, we accumulate water, but there's no outlet. There's no way to, to allow the water to flow out in such a way that fruit is the result. And so just like the Dead Sea, it begins to spoil, it begins to rotten. And that's what we find here this morning is a tree that should be producing fruit, and yet it is not. Uh, look with me, first of all, in verses 12 through 13. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. The first question I want to ask is, why a fig tree? Why did God use, why did Jesus go to a fig tree to use that as an illustration? Well, the, the reason he did is because a fig tree is both a picture of his judgment, as we're going to look at just briefly this morning, but it's also a picture of his grace. It's a picture of his blessing. It's similar to wine. Wine in the Bible is used as a metaphor of judgment but also of blessing. We will sit around and, and fellowship with, with Christ at the, 
what we celebrate, the Lord's Supper, the final supper, the, the, the one that we celebrate for all eternity with him, that he's preparing for us. He's preparing for us who are his bride. So the, the, the symbol here is very clear, and the context and the next sections are going to make that even more clear. So don't miss what is happening here. But again, just so you understand, I want to read, let, let's just use three passages, but there's multiple in the Old Testament. This is a metaphor that the disciples would have very much understood in that day. Jeremiah 8.13 says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Micah 7.1 says, Woe is me, for I become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. And that's, that's interesting, because I'm going to talk about that in just a second, okay? When the summer fruit has been gathered. In Israel, the harvest time for figs is actually mid-August into uh, mid-September. I don't know about here. Is that similar uh, time? Is now the time for, for figs here? In December. Okay, so a different time frame. In Israel, it's actually August to September. Okay, a little, little farther north than here, right? So you've got this, you've got him, him indicating here that it's now after the time of fruit is gathered. And it goes on in Micah 7.1. As when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So you can see even figs are a desirous thing. They're not just judgment. They're actually a thing of desire. Hosea 2.12, Isaiah 34.4, etc. All of these verses show the exact same thing, that figs are not only desirous, but they're a sign that God uses that metaphorically to show that his judgment is coming. And so it, it is not uh, an accident that God went to this fig tree. And since uh, judgment is clearly observed in this text, guess what many atheists do as they try to critique the Bible? I always find it interesting that people who say that God doesn't exist spend so much energy and life trying to prove that God doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how much time and energy people spend trying to disprove the reality, the existence of God. Um, so one commentator, James Edwards, noted two, for example, atheists that said this about this passage. In other words, they're, they're trying to criticize Jesus because he went to the fig tree, didn't find fruit, even though it wasn't the season for fruit, and he curses it. Listen to what they say. Uh, one of the atheists, he, uh, uh, James Edwards, quotes is T.W. Manson. T.W. Manson says, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it is simply incredible. So he's criticizing Jesus. He's saying, with all this power, he could have just created figs instead of cursing the tree. Listen to another one. Bertrand Russell said, I cannot myself feel that either in matter of wisdom or in matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known in history. He's saying, look what Jesus did. I can't even, I can't even putting him, put him up there with Confucius or Buddha as an example because Look what he did to this tree. How, it's almost like God is this monster, right? The tree should not be producing fruit, and so he just cursed it. 
And let me say this, it's not in the text, so I, I've got to be careful, but Jesus has a right to do anything he wants with his creation. That includes us. In other words, the right that Jesus has to condemn us for eternity to hell is clearly laid out in Scripture. But I want to I tell you that's not even what's being presented here in this text. What is being presented in this text is that Jesus should have gone and found what is often called the green fig. Let me explain that, and you're going to have to kind of hang with me to understand this, okay? Let me see if I have this up here. Yes, this is the green fig. You notice here in this picture that there are actually leaves in the picture. That's significant. So if you'll, if you'll hang with me here, in mid-August to mid-October, I, I said mid-September, it go, actually goes into October, typically in Israel, the fruit is actually ripened. So it'll go from this into the actual fig that is what they call the fruit. Thereafter, the buds will fall off the tree and then new buds will form. So the, the fruit actually is gone. Anything that's left that's not eaten will disappear. The leaves fall off. But then about March or April, this is formed, which is called the pagum. Now it's spelled P-A-G-G-I-M, but it's pronounced in Hebrew pagum. And this is again, often called the first fruit. That's in March or April. As soon as the fruit forms, then the leaves come. Do you see what's happening now? In other words, this, the, the passage that we have this morning tells us that the leaves, that Jesus saw the leaves. It wasn't time for the fruit, but the leaves were there, which was indication that the, he should have found pagum. He should have found pagum. In fact, in uh, Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, the pagum is actually mentioned. Even in Isaiah 28, 4, it says, um, let's see, in the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. So this was a delicacy, and it still is. Now, let me explain this to you so you understand this is actually, even though it's called a green fig, it's actually considered a bud. Because if you open that, it's actually the flower. So you would be eating the flower, which many people prefer. And as I, I just quoted even from Isaiah 28, it was a delicacy. It still is a delicacy. You can eat the pagum. And Jesus was looking for a pagum. And he, he didn't find any. I hope that makes sense in the context. Well, how does this apply to us? It clearly applies to us because many times we have what looks like fruitfulness. We're coming to church. We're actively involved. We're serving the Lord. But Jesus knows there's actually nothing stirring in our hearts. Not that others know. It's not the fear of man. It's not pretending to or, or making sure that, that your elders know that you're actively involved. And obviously, I'd encourage you uh, to be actively involved. That's not at all what we're saying. We're saying, is there an intimacy with Jesus that is, in fact, the fruitfulness that pleases the Lord? Jesus is desiring to be satisfied by your life. 
It's, it's, it's not, he doesn't want the foliage, he wants the fruit. That is what we see in this first text. But you also notice in verse 14 that Jesus not only cursed the fig tree so that he, because he couldn't find fruit to eat, he also says that no one else would eat of it either. In verse 14, it says, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. He's, he's not only pointing out that when you are not intimate with Christ, when Christ is not pleased with your life, you can't actually be fruitful in such a way that, that helps other people, that satisfies other people. And yet, sometimes I think we think in our own strength, if I'm just busy, then I'm, I'm being a blessing. I'm actually loving God and loving others. And that is what God is addressing here. But he's also showing us a prophetic reality that we're going to get to in this next section. And that is that the true worship of God comes through relationship with Christ. It doesn't come through ritual. Let's look at that in verses uh, 15 through 19. Jesus is displeased with religiosity that hinders others from worshiping him. Now, remember the Oreo. Okay, don't forget our Oreo. Let, let's just say this is a double-stuffed Oreo, okay? This is going to be jam-packed with goodies, and I don't want you to miss it because uh, just like the previous passage, the previous uh, context, this context is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. In fact, you have a bookstore over here. In some churches that I have spoken in, a bookstore would not be permitted because of this exact passage. They would say, you can't sell anything in church. How dare you sell anything in church? Well, I believe that's a misunderstanding of the, the, the text uh, this morning. And I'm going to show you that, again, based on what Mark is writing here. And the first thing I want us to see, let me go forward here. There we go. We'll get on the right slide. And how religiosity hinders others from worshiping is found in verses 15 through 16. Let's read that together as well. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, there's a Greek word here that's used twice it's the word skios, and it's the word merchandise in English. So he literally was overturning the tables of merchandise, and then he would not allow the word anything there is merchandise. He would not allow merchandise to be carried through the temple. And why is that significant? Why, why is the word merchandise significant? Well, it was actually called the temple tax in Exodus chapter 30 and verses 11 through 16. In other words, the merchandise that was being sold was not the issue. It wasn't that they were selling in the temple. In fact, as I just mentioned in Exodus chapter 30, the, the merchandise was commanded by God to be sold. Whether it was the uh, sacrificial animals that would be sold there, whether it was the bowls and vessels that would be sold there, whatever was needed for the sacrifices would be made available in the temple. And much of that was because people would travel to the temple uh, to purchase those goods, and so it needed to be made available. In other words, if you hear someone say, things should not be sold in the physical church 
then they're not understanding what's going on in, in, in this context. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 21, actually says, the vessels used in worship, that word merchandise is translated as the vessels used in worship in Hebrews 9.21. In the Septuagint, which uh, for those of you who may not know, that's the Old Testament that is translated into the Koine Greek, uh, about a third of its uses, usages also translated as sacrificial elements or objects of sacramental worship. Clearly, God is not saying that things shouldn't be sold in the temple, what was the temple at that time. That is not the point he is making. And I want to emphasize that. Why then was this such a big deal? Well, first of all, uh, we can find out why it was a big deal in what he said. Notice in verse 17 through 19 that it was what he said, not what he did, that really kind of troubled those that, that hated God and, and gave awe, which is the word there, to those that believed in him. Read with me verses 17 through 19. Verse 17 says, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished. They were in awe at his teaching. So we see here, first of all, what Jesus said tells us specifically why intimacy with God is so vital. True worship is always Christ-centered. It's always Christ-centered. How is that represented? It's represented in the word prayer. It's represented in the word prayer. Notice that Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And that is found in verses 17 and 19. Let me go back here. There we go. Uh, true worship is an intimate relationship with God, and it is always Christ-centered. Christ is quoting Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7. And I don't want you to miss this. This is really important to understand because it's going to bring clarity to what is actually going on. The words of Jesus clarify why he was angry and the, and the message that he was trying to, uh, not trying, that he did convey very clearly to them. Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7 says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, and that's, that's key, he starts out with the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations. There is a prophecy, a clear prophecy here in Isaiah 56 that is telling us that Jesus, the Messiah, will come and will actually replace the entire temple cult. That's actually what we're seeing in Mark chapter 11. Jesus is saying, this sacrificial system is no longer needed because I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I am the Lamb of the God that all nations now will be able to come to me and pray. And, and what is fascinating, what is going on, He's pointing out, number one, that intimacy with him, true worship 
is prayer. And we're going to get to that in the next section even more in depth. Prayer, if I can say it this way, is the pagum he's looking for. He's looking for intimate relationship with him. That's what he's looking for. And you may be here this morning incredibly busy in life, doing incredible things for the kingdom. And if you're like me, prayer gets pushed to the side many times. I want to be transparent with you how God has graciously dealt with me in my own heart. I want to spend more time with him in prayer, but I struggle with it. Anybody else? (laughs) It's a struggle. But I want to be intimate with my God. I want to please him. And what pleases God most is to truly be a temple. We are the living temples of God that is praying to him. And the beauty is it's for all nations. His elect are in all nations. He is opening the gospel here to all nations. What is fascinating is that, as we'll see in just a second, the temple actually has a place for the Gentiles. Even in Israel's time, they had a place that Gentiles could come worship because of even Isaiah 56. And Jesus is essentially saying, if I can say it this way, there's plenty of foliage, but there's no fruit. There's bustling religious activity, but there's no sincerity and truth. There are tremendous words that we engage with with each other, but careless actions. There's outward conformity, but there's impure hearts. We have regulated rituals that we guard religiously, but we lack intimate relationships in this body right here. There's eloquent speech, but we walk away having unforgiving hearts. We, We can have a lot of foliage. We can have a busy temple, but what about our hearts? Are we actually pleasing the Lord with what is going on in our hearts. So what are things that God, uh, that we can learn about what Jesus was teaching from his words? Well, first of all, in Isaiah 56, 7, Jesus says, is it not written? The authority that even Jesus, the living word of God gave us is the written word of God. It is intimacy with him, both in understanding the word of God, but also being able to live it out. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. If you notice up here on the screen, uh, it's small, but the large section in the front is called the court of the Gentiles. And that's actually where the money exchangers, that's, that's where people were selling the goods that would be used in the sacrificial system. And what most commentators say is that that area had gotten so busy that the Gentiles had no place to worship. Isn't that interesting? It was a picture of what was going on with Israel. So there's two things happening here. Jesus is walking into the temple and he's saying, this is not the answer, I am the answer. And the prophecy that all nations would be able to come to Christ, that the elect would consist of all nations is being fulfilled. In other words, judgment was coming to the nation of Israel, just like that fig tree. They have foliage, religiosity, but they have no fruit. I find it fascinating. (coughs) Excuse me. I find it fascinating that Jesus, 
And in his triumphal entry, here is the Messiah, right? They're, they're, they're proclaiming him to be Hosanna. He walks through the mercy gate, as is prophesied would happen, that the Messiah would do that. He walks through the mercy gate, and you would think if you were a Jew in that, that day and you were worshiping God, you would think, as prophecy said, that he would go into the temple, which he does in verse 11. And, and if I just tried to imagine what it would be like if I didn't understand that Jesus' kingdom was not on this earth, I would think he would go into the temple and he would begin to reign there so everyone could go worship him. And instead, he goes into the temple. Verse 11 says he looks around and he walks out. <laughs> Can you imagine? And, and, and this text doesn't say the crowd was there. What happened to the crowd? When we preach on the crucifixion, many, many times it's said that that same crowd that praised him then was yelling, crucify him. What happened? Because they weren't seeing that it wasn't about the temple, it was about Jesus. And I think sometimes we do that. We are so quick as living sacrifices to crawl off the altar. We're so quick to present ourselves to God in a way that we find to be pleasing and satisfying rather than what Jesus wants most, <clears throat> which is intimacy with him. We also see that worship is observed in the hearer's reaction, again, those that hated God. And I want to highlight it's not what he did that angered them, it was what he said. What they heard angered him because they knew he was saying the, the religious cult of worship in the temple is now done away with. Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be the object, I mean, he was the object of worship, but they were falsely setting up a religious system rather than Christ. And then also in uh, noticing the, the other ob observer's reaction to him, um, that he was worshiped. Sorry, I'm pushing this on accident here as we go forward. I'm, I'm used, to, I'm so spoiled in, in church of others uh, uh, doing it for me. I'll have to work on that. Next time, I'll, I'll have that down. So moving on now, just for time's sake, to our, our last point, and that is that Jesus is displeased with hearts that cannot worship him in truth. I'm sorry, I'm really, I'm just gonna give it all to you here. We'll, we'll just park it there. <laughs> Jesus is displeased with hearts that cannot worship him in truth. <clears throat> if you notice in verses 20 through 25, we return to that, cracker again, if you would, in the Mark and Oreo. We return to that same fig tree in verse 20. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So what I, the first thing I want us to see here is that faith is the Savior's perfect will comes through prayer. Faith and the Savior's perfect will. In other words, if you want to grow in your faith, you've got to be a, a man or a woman of prayer. You've got to be a child of prayer. If you want your faith to grow, it's going to come through prayer. This is God's ordained way of gaining faith. That and the word of God. What does the scripture say? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. 
These are the two ways that God increases our faith, both from hearing about God and then depending on God. If we're just hearing about God and not depending on him, our faith will not produce fruit. It will be faith that is dead. It's faith without works is in fact dead, just like that fig tree. We must hear the word of God and we must engage in dependence on God through that. It's trust in the Lord, right? Trust and obey as we even pray so often. Faith in the Savior's perfect will comes from both hearing and intimacy and prayer with him. I want to make sure that we understand, first of all, in verses 20 through, through 21, that, uh, excuse me, 22, that God's judgment is sure. If you're here this morning, I, I don't, I, I'm not trying to be mean to you, and you don't have a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to be very clear. Again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to help you understand. Just as if someone was here about to go off a cliff, I want to make sure you understand where you are headed that judgment is inevitable for every single one of us who is not in a covenant relationship with the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's what John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It is by grace through faith, as Ephesians 2 says. It's not of works, It's not because you have some fruit because you can't actually have fruit that pleases God without that covenant relationship that we don't deserve. Judgment is sure, and that's what he's pointing out here. In fact, I don't want you to miss what he's saying. He is not saying if you pray for anything in in life, God's just gonna give whatever you want. Lord, I need a Ferrari Testarossa, right? No, no. But that's what's many times preached from this text. You have these, these name it and claim it or, or these easy believism gospels that come out of a false understanding of this text. And people love that, don't they? What Jesus is saying, and I, w- I want you to understand this very clearly, is that we are to pray in accordance with his will. What, what does the Lord's prayer start out with? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. As Jesus teaches us to pray, I challenge you to start looking at the verses in Scripture that give us prayers. Number one, they're actually pretty short. Interestingly enough, isn't it? Don't we equate someone who is spiritual many times with long prayers? I'm not saying long prayers are wrong. Don't misunderstand me. But there's an element that we see in every prayer. In fact, look at Jesus himself, the prayer he offered to his father before going to the cross. If there is any way, let this cup pass. Nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was saying, Father, this is, this is my heart's desire, but I still want your will. Do you see the dependence there on Christ? And that is what he's actually teaching the disciples What is his house of prayer? What brings God the most joy is that we have hearts that are submitting to his will. So why would he use the illustration of a mountain being cast into the sea? This is what I believe. If if you look at Mark chapter 11 through chapter 13, it's all about the temple. It's actually about Christ. 
But the temple is one of the central features in Mark 11 through 13. In, in fact, in, in chapter 13, verse 2, two chapters later, he promises that every stone will be unturned. And if you were today to go to where Bethany is, you can look back at the Temple Mount. So where they were, they would have a clear view of the mountain, of the Temple Mount, where the temple that they had just left was. And he's saying to them a clear prophecy that his judgment is sure, that not one single stone will be unturned. If you go today to Jerusalem, as I have done, you will see that very thing, the prophecy fulfilled exactly as Jesus predicted it would happen. In fact, you can even see the burn marks on the stones that once represented where the temple was. Mark chapter 13, 2 says that. Every stone will be thrown down. Chapter 14 and verse 58 says that a spiritual temple will re replace the man-made temple. Chapter 14, verse 24 says that J Jesus says that his own blood replaced the merchandise of the old temple cult. Chapter 14 and verse 24, as well as in, in chapter 10, it is better that, that we recognize that Jesus is the Lamb of God that makes the payment once and for all. And then in chapter 15, verse 38, we see Jesus, when he died, that the veil in the temple was rent in two. And we have full access now to God the Father through Jesus. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if you desire the will of God to be accomplished, it will happen. <laughs> that is powerful, isn't it? It's not saying, hey, this is all about you. Whatever you want, like we, we, treat it, we treat God in prayer like a fast food restaurant. It's not saying that we don't cast our cares on God. Clearly, Scripture teaches that. But it's with a heart of, I really want your will. If you're here this morning and you're single and your desire is to marry someone, maybe you're, you're very interested and you're, you're thinking that marriage, the marriage covenant is near, you should be praying, Lord, I desire to marry this person, but I truly want your will. Believe me, the vast majority of counseling I do is marital counseling because people don't understand fully what they're getting into. And we need to pray God's will. We need to understand that God's will is what is best for us. And that is what he's pointing out here. Uh, and by the way, here's a picture of that view uh, from the Mount of Olives where on the way to Bethany, where the tree very likely could have been. So you can see the, the Dome of the Rock there now, uh, where once the temple stood. And I'm so thankful because where God's judgment is, he also offers mercy. If you're here this morning, there is an opportunity to receive his mercy. And that is because of what Jesus did for us on Calvary. As I've already mentioned, he became the only perfect sacrifice, shedding his blood as an atonement for sins. God's merciful provision is sure. Look with me at verses 23 through 24 this morning as we Look at this last section together. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, 
Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also is in heaven may forgive you your trespassers, trespasses. Uh, this is one of those texts where I think, uh, uh, I wish we had time to really go through this, but I, I do want to highlight this because it's significant. He starts out with a singular pr- prayer and says, if any of you, in other words, you singularly, if you pray for anything, God will give you that. Again, it's about God's will. And then he switches to a plural. And he says, when you stand praying in the plural. In other words, when there's corporate prayer, whether it's individual or corporate prayer, we should have a heart that desires to please the Lord. Number one, of dependence on him, desiring his will individually, but corporately, watch what he does here. Listen carefully in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, again, that's in the plural, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. I, I, wanna, I, I wish we had time, too, to even cross-reference Matthew chapter 18, where he talks about forgiveness, and he says uh, uh, to Peter, how many times should, or Peter asks, how many times should I forgive? And he says, seven times 70, that, that number of, of infinity. And he ends that with, whatever you do unto others, I will do unto you. And he, he reiterates that here and says, so that your father also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In other words, a true believer is one who first of all understands God's forgiveness because that's central to the covenant that we have in Christ. And second of all, he then lives it out because I'm gonna tell you a dirty little secret if you haven't already figured this out. The closer you get to anyone, including Christians, the more you're going to see their sin. Did you know if you're married, you married a sinner? Right? We, we, we joke about that. But the more intimate that you become with someone, the more you're going to... It, it, it uh, kind of takes me back every time when I do marital counseling where I, I talk to a couple who, who knew that their, their spouse was a sinner, but they're shocked that their spouse could sin in such a way. And, and I'm, I'm laughing about that, but don't we often do that? We are incredibly depraved sinners. We are, even in a covenant relationship with Christ. I joke as I invite people to our church, I, I mean this, but it kind of you know, breaks the ice. I say, there's one requirement to visit our church. And people kind of perk up like, oh, there's a requirement? I say, you have to be a sinner. And, and immediately they're like, oh, I got that covered, no problem. But don't we often think that coming to church, somehow we're not going to get hurt, that these sinners shouldn't be sinners? Forgiveness is required even in our churches. But I'm going to tell you, for time's sake this morning, what I believe God is telling us and showing us through this is that prayer is the faith necessary to produce the fruit of forgiveness. Let me say that again. Prayer is the pagum that Jesus is looking for to be satisfied that will produce the fruit of forgiveness that is satisfying 
to him. You know, I, I, I want you to understand this because as a dad, as a pastor, as a biblical counselor, sometimes I make the mistake of saying something like, you need to forgive so-and-so because they have sinned against you. That's true, isn't it? That's a true statement. But you know what I often leave out? That's actually behaviorism. What I need to do is say, you need to get on your knees and really understand God's forgiveness so that you can forgive. I'm not telling you, any, any of you, that you need to go forgive today people that God is bringing to your mind. You do need to do that. You need to ask God because it's his will for a heart that is ready to forgive others that have hurt you. It takes time sometimes, doesn't it? It takes time for God to work. I'm not saying that you don't offer that forgiveness to God. When God was on the cross, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He vertically offered that burden to God. He didn't bear it. But when we come to him, then he forgives us. There's this horizontal relationship as well. We must have hearts of forgiveness and that'll only happen through prayer. If you're not depending on God, there's no pagoom. Don't expect there to be forgiveness. And I am convinced in my own life, I'm convinced in my church's life, I'm convinced more importantly from this passage that there is no way that even a Christian can forgive unless they are truly intimate with Christ and understand your theology will be played out in your most intimate relationships. That is the reality of this text. And I ask us this morning to consider, are we pleasing the Lord through our lives or are we just a tree that has foliage? Do we look very religious and we're busy and we have a lot going on, but there is no fruit because there's no prayer? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I'm thankful for your word in my own life, Lord, as you continue to point out the deceitful, deceitful nature of my own heart. Lord, it's so easy to become dependent on myself, gimmicks, traditions, ways that I've done things. And so I'm grateful that by your grace, you allow us to have our eyes open to your truth as we walk with you, and that your word becomes a lamp unto our feet. And I pray for Hillcrest as they continue to grow spiritually under the leadership of the elders, under the preaching of Billy that you have called and ordained to be here. May they be sensitive to your word as preached. Lord, may they desire to be intimate as, as I desire to be intimate with you. And Lord, we, we all come to you this morning and admit and confess that we want to spend more time in prayer with you. We want to do your will. We want to have a heart that is more keen to do your will than our own. Help us not to build our kingdoms, but to build yours. Help us to walk away a changed people this morning. And we worship you and praise you for the picture that will be represented in baptism of what you have done in these dear souls' hearts. Thank you for your salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen.